Good evening. Afghan refugees arrive in the United States. Democrats scramble as the eviction moratorium comes to an end and the big short all over again. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Friday, July 30th, 2021. In another dispiriting setback for the nation's efforts to stamp out the coronavirus, scientists who studied the big COVID-19 outbreak in Massachusetts concluded that vaccinated people who got so-called breakthrough infections carried about the same amount of the coronavirus as those who didn't get the shots. The authors say the findings suggest the CDC's mass guidance should be expanded to include the entire country, even outside of hotspots. Leaked internal documents on breakthrough infections and the Delta variant suggests the DC pardon me the CDC may be considering other changes in advice on how the nation fights the coronavirus such as recommending masks for everyone and requiring vaccines for doctors and other health workers the documents were obtained by the Washington Post the documents appear to be talking points for CD staff to use with the public one point advised acknowledge the war has changed an apparent reference to deepening concern that many millions of vaccinated people could be a source of wide-ranging spread CDC officials say more data is coming They're tracking breakthrough cases as part of much larger studies that involve following tens of thousands of vaccinated and unvaccinated people across the country over time. And the Justice Department, the, pardon me, the Justice Department in a reversal says the Treasury Department must provide the House Ways and Means Committee former President Donald Trump's tax returns, apparently ending a legal showdown over the records. During the Trump administration, then-Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin said he wouldn't turn over the tax returns because he concluded they were being sought by Democrats who controlled the House of Representatives for partisan reasons. During the Trump administration, then-Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin said he couldn't turn over the tax returns because he concluded they were being sought by Pardon me. The issue has its roots in the 2016 presidential campaign when Trump claimed that he could not release his taxes due to an IRS audit. In recent news, according to handwritten notes, Trump urged senior Justice Department Pardon me, in related news, according to handwritten notes, Trump urged senior Justice Department officials to declare the results of the 2020 election corrupt. That's in a December phone call, according to notes taken by Richard Dunahue, who was then acting Attorney General Jeffrey Rose's deputy. The December 27th call took place just days after Attorney General William Barr resigned, leaving Rosen in charge of the department during a turbulent final weeks of the administration that also included the January 6th riot at the U.S. Capitol. In the call, Trump claimed the department had failed to respond to legitimate complaints of crime. Unsubstantiated claims of fraud have been repeatedly rejected by judge after judge, including Trump appointees and by election officials across the country. At one point in the conversation, the notes show Rosen uh, told Trump that the Justice Department can't, won't snap its fingers, change the outcome of the election, doesn't work that way. Trump responded to Rosen, just say the election was corrupt and leave the rest to me and the R congressman, R probably referring to Republican. And the first flight evacuating Afghans who worked alongside Americans in Afghanistan brought more than 200 people, including scores of children and babies in arms, to new lives in the United States today. And President Joe Biden said he was proud to welcome them home. The flight touched down at Dulles, Virginia, just outside Washington, D.C. after midnight. Virginia Senator Tim Kaine. 
But at the same time as Congress takes this dramatic and very bipartisan action to protect our Afghan partners, uh, we have the first landing of Afghan SIVs coming to the U.S. in this kind of new chapter as the U.S. is ending its combat presence in Afghanistan. 2 a.m. this morning, 200 uh, Afghans came into Dulles Airport in Virginia, and after quick processing there, they went to Fort Lee, a fort uh, about 30 miles south of where I live uh, in the Tri-Cities area near Petersburg, Virginia. There's a hotel that's relatively new on that base that will be used as a processing center for up to 2,500 Afghans at a time. The expectation is once they come into Dulles, they'll be transferred to Fort Lee for prompt processing. Many of them need to have uh, medical exams completed before they can be relocated with families and in communities around the United States. One out of every two or three Virginians has a direct connection to our nation's military mission, and we feel particularly supportive and even proud that we can be the initial place of touching soil in the United States as these Afghan SIVs and their family members begin a next exciting, challenging chapter of opportunity in this country, just as waves of immigrants before have uh, enriched our nation. The Biden administration calls the effort Operation Allies Refuge. The operation has brought backing from Republicans and Democratic lawmakers and from veterans groups. Supporters cite repeated instances of Taliban forces targeting Afghans who work with Americans or with the Afghan government. The newly arrived Afghan people will join 70,000 others who have resettled in the United States since 2008 under the special visa program. And House Democrats failed to round up enough votes today to pass legislation extending the federal ban on evictions just two days before it's set to expire. Lawmakers say a possible House floor vote today would be scrapped after leadership struggled all day to round up enough support. We don't have the votes, a Democratic aide said. Democrats were caught by surprise the day before when President Biden urged Congress to extend the eviction ban, which had been in place since September. House Democrat Maxine Waters defended the measure, while Republican, uh, a Republican representative named McMorris rejected it. Is it an emergency enough that you're going to stop families from being put on the sidewalk? Is it emergency enough that you're going to need to wonder what the hell is going to happen with these children that won't be able to go back to school uh, because they don't even know where they're going to be sleeping or they're going to be? It's an emergency. And so, yes, we should move forward and we should do everything that we can. So I think that this is rushed. Uh, this is this is not the way to legislate. And uh, the majority has not done its job to actually do the hearings so that we could move forward on a legislation that would um, be appropriate for this time. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi spoke in favor of the action and described what an eviction looks like. Forty six billion dollars was allocated both in the year end omnibus uh, last December as well as in the uh, rescue package, $46 billion. This money has largely gone out to the states and local governments to implement and to give to the renters so they can pay the rent, which helps the landlords, of course, too. The fact is that less than 10% of that has been spent. Around $3 billion is reported to me, but let's say it would be 10%. Why should the renters be punished for the fact that the system did not put money in their pockets to pay the rent uh, to, um, uh, to the landlords. 
So that's where we come to this. It's like, well, CDC, you have defined uh, this. These people have not gotten the money. I think this is something that will work out. It isn't about any more money. The money is there, resting in localities and governor's offices across the country. So we would like the CDC to expand the moratorium. That's where it can be done. And, of course, with the public message of governors, mayors, etc., give the money for its purpose uh, to the renters. Have you ever seen a, an eviction? Sometimes even the law enforcement people go into these apartments are crying because they know they're going to do something that's going to put babies' cribs out on the street, personal belongings out on the street. It happens like that. Passersby can even take that stuff. These people have been evicted, now have to find another place to live, to take this stuff that's now been on the street. It is the most heart-wrenching and so in defiance of everything that we say we are about in the Gospel of Matthew. When I was needed shelter, you, you gave it to me. That the words of the Lord. So I think that this is something that fairness and justice has to be done. We'll ensure that it does. And that's House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. While House, uh, meanwhile, House White House Deputy Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre blamed the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court said it could only be extended with congressional authorization. That was their decision. Um, that's how they were able to strike it down, and that's what they said needed to happen. And so this this bill um, that the Pelosi is, is asking for, uh, this would meet that requirement if successful. So this is important. important. It's incredibly important to, to move forward. And so the administration is working, is going to work together with leaders in Congress on uh, potential avenues to extend the eviction moratorium to protect these vulnerable renters and their families. We understand how critical that is, how important that is. It has been a lifeline to so many, so many Americans here. So this is a public health concern, as you can imagine, that we think should be supported by both Republicans and Democrats. So we support the Speaker's effort, and we will do everything that we can to move this forward. And that was the uh, White House Deputy Press Secretary. Lawmakers expressed frustration that the $46.5 billion in rental aid allocated by Congress by pandemic relief measures is still largely unspent, with only $3 billion distributed to renters by state and local governments so far. The Centers for Disease Control Prevention renewed the eviction ban on June 24th through the end of July, saying it would be the last extension. But the Supreme Court warned the Biden administration that the CDC didn't have the authority to issue the ban and that only further extensions could be – would uh, – that any further extensions would uh, need to be enacted by Congress. The National Association of Realtors opposes extensions of the moratorium, saying it hurts small mom-and-pop landlords. But Jim Baker of the Private Equity Stakeholders Project says it's not small landlords landlords behind the recent spate of illegal evictions and rent increases across the nation. He says it's the huge corporations like BlackRock that have been buying up distressed housing to make a quick buck for wealthy investors. Yeah, so private equity firms are investment firms that uh, often invest money on behalf of institutional investors like pension funds, endowments, wealthy families and seek to generate very high returns, doubling or tripling their money in three to five years. They've been growing dramatically 
one of the areas that we've seen them investing is buying up more and more of U.S. housing, ranging from apartment buildings to buying up single-family homes and renting them out to buying, you know, even mobile home communities. These landlords often are very focused on the bottom line, right? These private equity landlords are often very focused on the bottom line. How does a huge company like BlackRock wind up owning tenements and trailer parks? Companies like Blackstone, a firm called Predium Partners, Carlisle Group, etc. There's been really dramatic growth buying housing since the global financial crisis in 2008. After that, we saw many of these firms, as it became harder for people to buy homes, so the mortgage credit became less available and more people turned to renting, these firms saw a, an opportunity to make money off the rental market. And so in some cases bought up portfolios of foreclosed homes. In other cases, directly purchased apartment buildings, mobile home communities. In many cases have substantially raised rents. Part of what we've seen in the last several years, especially in the last few months, is substantial rent increases. What we've also seen is large numbers of evictions. We've been tracking eviction filings across a few dozen counties in several states, mostly in the South and Southwest, tracking eviction filings by corporate landlords generally. So private equity firms, but also big publicly traded landlords and other large corporate landlords. Just in these few dozen counties, we've seen more than 75,000 eviction filings by these large corporate landlords, private equity firms, and others since the CDC eviction moratorium uh, took effect last September. So part of what we've seen is even while there's been a moratorium in place, that hasn't stopped some of these very large firms from continuing to file to evict and in some cases evict residents. Isn't that against the law? Isn't that a $200,000 fine? Isn't that a jail sentence? How do they get away with that? How come there isn't a Justice Department getting involved? We've asked the same question. There are lots of loopholes in the law and the the apartment industry. Soon after the eviction moratorium took effect, the apartment industry, including some of these firms, lobbied to create a number of loopholes in the law, requiring that an individual has to submit the form, not prohibiting the landlord from moving the case all the way up until the sort of end of the eviction process. We've also are asking the same question that you are. Why haven't the uh, Justice Department got involved? Our recommendations that we made before the House Committee on the Coronavirus Crisis earlier this week was they should be looking into investigating these corporate landlords, these private equity firms, et cetera, that have been filing, in some cases, thousands of eviction actions to determine whether or not any of them have violated the law and should be recommending and recommend that the Justice Department take action to assess penalties for landlords that have, in fact, violated the law. What you've described really reminds me of 2008 in that movie, The Big Short. It seems like the same kind of thing happening, like big guys moving in and squeezing destitute poor people. It's a funny coincidence. The most frequent filer of evictions that we've seen is a company called Predium Partners, a private equity firm called Predium Partners that's run by a guy named Don Mullen. Don Mullen 
got rich during the, the global financial crisis. Where he worked for Goldman Sachs. And he got rich betting against the mortgage market during the global financial crisis. Well, he created his own firm that started buying up uh, single-family homes and renting them out. His company has been the number one filer of evictions, evicting families out of homes in the middle of the pandemic. It's not just a coincidence that it sounds like the big short in the global financial crisis. It's literally some of the same people doing very similar things again. Jim Baker, the private equity stakeholders project, firms controlled by Predium Partners have sought evictions for unpaid rent against 1,700 residents in seven states. Predium Partners contends it has secured upwards of $25 million in rental assistance on behalf of more than 3,000 residents since the beginning of the pandemic. It's based in New York City. Predium CEO Don Mullen, a former Goldman Sachs principal, was depicted it. In the big short, a film about how greedy speculators prompted the 2008 collapse in the U.S. housing market. And some international news. Hundreds of thousands of children continue to suffer from hunger in Lebanon after last year's devastating Beirut port blast and the ongoing economic crisis in the country. That's according to Save the Children. Since the August 4th explosion, the result of hundreds of tons of poorly stored and highly explosive ammonium nitrate igniting, the gap in finances families need for basic survival has increased for almost all wealth groups. The explosion killed more than 200 people and injured some 6,500 flattening parts of Beirut. Joining us from Lebanon is Renya Mazri, a journalist based in that city of Beirut who was on the scene last year. Thanks for joining us, Renya. My pleasure to be with you. <clears throat> Thank you on short notice. Uh, one year later, what have what what I just said, the report from Save the Children, is that an accurate depiction of what's been happening in Lebanon since a year ago? <clears throat> Yes and no. Um, yes, in the sense that it does present a little bit of information as to the, the, the extremity of the economic crisis that we are facing now. And actually, the situation is worse than what that report says, because now we have more than two-thirds of families in Lebanon are, you know, cannot afford to have enough food. More than two-thirds of families in Lebanon go to bed hungry. And that number, when we look at the Syrian refugee communities, almost is all of them. So we're talking about 99% of Syrian refugee households do not have enough money to purchase food, and 77% of all Lebanese households do not have enough money to purchase food. But the reason for that is not the August 4th explosion. The reason for that is the devaluation of the currency. We've had the currency in Lebanon devaluate more than 90%, and it's continuing to devaluate. Now, as to why we've seen such mass devaluation of the Lebanese currency and why we've seen such mass hyperinflation, again, that is a political problem. It is not as if you know, a hurricane has hit the country and caused a devaluation of the currency and caused the port explosion and caused such hunger and such economic bankruptcy in the country. Not at all. What we have in Lebanon is basically capitalism on steroids. What we have in Lebanon is a policy of, of trade liberalization, a neoliberal policy for the past few decades that has pushed to support the banking system in Lebanon at the, at the burden of the taxpayer community, while at the same time We've had government after government in Lebanon not make any investments in the economy. So basically for decades now, the Lebanese economy has simply been a consumptive economy, importing and consuming. 
So it would only be a matter of time before that bubble would burst, and that bubble did burst in October 2019. And then on top of that, Lebanon then had the the COVID pandemic, and then on top of that, Lebanon then had the August 4th explosion. So we are talking about a country that is broken economically and financially and still does not have the political leadership to take the country forward. What are the demonstrations that we've been reading about in the last few days been about, or weeks? Well, I mean, August 4th, just in a few days, will mark one year since this explosion, and there has been no accountability, absolutely no accountability. And there's two ways that we can trace the accountability. Shall we just hold the people directly responsible to it in the sense that the individuals who claimed to know and did nothing? Or shall we also hold responsible all the individuals who should have known and did nothing? And we're still at this situation, but as of yet, there has not been any serious um, national investigations of the crime, nor have there been any kind of accountability. Quite the contrary, quite the contrary. We now have the Prime Minister Delegate, Najib Mikati, who is a billionaire tycoon, who himself was Prime Minister in Lebanon when the ammonium nitrate first arrived at the port. And yet this is the man who now has been given the reins to uh, set up a new government in the country. So th- the level of absurdity seems to have no, no ends in Lebanon. And just to wrap up, uh, we don't have enough time to really go into depth as I'd like to on this story. But again, we'll have you on. Um, uh, Rania, what uh, should people here in the United States be prepared to do to help? Most definitely lift the sanctions on Lebanon because the United States government is taking advantage of the financial bankruptcy by tightening the reins on Hezbollah. And while Hezbollah is partly responsible to the crisis, that is not the concern of the United States. The United States wants to have Lebanon be defenseless against the Israeli enemy, and it wants to push Lebanon into a normalization agreement with the enemy, which would be completely devastating for the country, not simply economically and politically, but for the very existence of the country as a civil state. And so what I would urge all Americans to do is urge the U.S. government to lift the sanctions on each and every Lebanese, because as we know from the examples in Cuba and Venezuela and otherwise, Sanctions are simply a form of collective punishment that have never pushed any country forward and, quite the contrary, have simply served the interest of U.S. destructive foreign policies. Thank you very much, Rania Masri, a journalist based in Beirut, joining us live from that city. Appreciate your time. And in local news, City Comptroller Scott Stringer is holding off on approving the main construction contract in the city's effort to build a flood prevention levy along the East River on the Lower East Side. Earlier this week, Stringer sent the contract back to the city's Department of Design and Construction, seeking information on two issues. The decision came a day after opponents of the project rallied against it in front of Stringer's Manhattan office. The decision further delays construction on the $1.27 billion plan to level the 58-acre park and rebuild it eight feet taller, turning it into a flood barrier for the surrounding neighborhood. Opponents of the reconstruction plan have criticized the raise in ra- the raise R A Z E and raise R A S R A I S E plan for the park, which was developed without community input, and we'll see about a thousand mature trees cut down.